Have you seen me dice bag? <laughs> the Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dirt the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files podcast. Talking bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day. I'm coming live from my den under the stairs here in Bolton, UK. I'm surrounded by my stuff. If I turn to my left, there's my ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor, Caroline Monroe. I'll just give it a tap. Ah yes, most unusual. Very unusual. This is her appearance as Tammy in the New Avengers episode, Angels of Death playing a nurse in a secret conspiracy to kill off members of the government. It's bonkers. Uh, to my right is my great library of tabletop RPGs and my grognard files. I'm going to pull down this file. It's not a game. It's not a supplement, but a magazine. Imagine Adventure Games magazine for players of the Dungeons & Dragons game are in a circle. It wasn't all about White Dwarf in the UK back in the day. There was a contender, a pretender to the throne. This episode is another two-parter, exploring this great magazine, its features and its impact on the RPG scene. I, I need to budge up a bit. There's hardly any room in the den, as it's filled up with boxes of fanzines that are due to be shipped or posted, as we say in Bolton, to the corners of the world. Australia, America, Canada, Japan. Well, if not the corners, then some of the nooks and crannies of the world. There are a hundred limited edition hard copies that have been produced. And there's still a chance to get a copy. If you go to thegrognardfile.com, you can find out how. I always wanted to have a gaming fanzine. In fact, back in 1984, we put together a dummy copy of The Armchair Adventurer with bits and pieces written by all three of us. It wasn't very PC, I'm afraid. I remember an hilarious article um, for artificial limbs for RuneQuest characters, uh, mobility options for those unlucky adventurers who'd copped it and had arms and legs lopped off and no healing six. The zine never saw the light of day, as the only photocopier in the neighbourhood was the local grocer, and he'd bought a, a batch of pink paper, and uh, there were reams and reams of it, and he insisted that he was going to use it all up um, before he got any white stuff. And for months and months, our character sheets were bright pink, and the only other option was the library, where it was impossible to print double-sided. In either case, the 10p a copy was prohibitive too. The idea was abandoned, as my life became subsumed by postal games. I set up my own PBM and lost part of my adolescence. But that's another story for another day. Why did I want to produce a fanzine? Well... It was so it would appear in Imagine, Adventure Games magazine, and for the plays of Dungeons and Dragons, are in a circle. It was produced in 
the UK by TSR between April 1983 and October 1985, running for 31 editions. And in the back pages, there would be uh, a regular column about fanzines. And they were very good at engaging with uh, uh, plays of the hobby. Back in February of this year, it happened again. I was inspired to do a fanzine thanks to reading the Imagine magazines rediscovered in the attic. Uh, something was awakened and I finally decided to produce a fanzine of my own. Don't worry, there are no lame jokes about being lame in the new version. Instead, there's a cover by Russ Nicholson, a RuneQuest story by author Justin Hill, art from Mark Lamming, as well as the usual bobbins from me, Blythe, at Daily Dwarf and Eddie. Revisiting Imagine has reminded me how inspiring it was. I go up into the attic in this part of the episode with Blythe and we look through our collection of Imagine magazines. It's a very soporific discussion. We're more somnambulant than usual. I put it down to us both being a bit tired and it's quite dark up there and warm. Don't worry though, because the podcast will soon spark back into life as we're joined by none other than Paul Coburn, all the way from New Zealand. He was the editor of Imagine, and he shares with us his experiences of setting up the magazine and how he got into the gaming hobby. At Daily Dwarf has gatecrashed the party to talk about Dave Langford and Critical Mass, which, of course, appeared in White Dwarf. But I always thought that Imagine covered the science fiction hinterland better than White Dwarf. At Daily Dwarf has submitted the case for the defence. In the next part, I will put forward the counter-argument with Colin Greenland and Dave Pringle's contributions to Imagine. Okay, grab yourself a strong coffee, a chop chip hobnob, and ramblers, let's get rambling. Show and tell! Well, we've climbed up to the very summits of Dirt Towers to the attic. I think we've only once been here before. I've got Blythe with me. Hi, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. Yeah, we've only been up here once before when we had the Moorcock episode do with the second part of um, Stormbringer. This is the attic where we store the archive of arcane RPG material. We hand it over to the spiders and we come up here every so often just to have a delve and a, a dove. Can you dove? I don't know if you can dove. I don't know. Have a delve and a dove uh, to try and find some little nuggets from Roleplane's past. Um, now, later on in the podcast, um, Paul Coburn, in the second part of this episode, is going to pick specific elements of regular features, features of it. What I thought we'd do, Blythe, is look at our respective magazine collections yes. and look at a couple of specific magazines. Yes. Does that, sound? that sounds like a good idea. Yeah. 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 So um, I'm going to, uh, if you can, can you pass that box over there? That is my box. Over. Okay, there you go. Not that one. Oh, this uh, one? No, put that one back. All right. All right, one, yeah. yeah. Oh, I see. All right, yes, okay. Put that one back, yeah. <laughs> We won't look in there. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> 
that, that's this is one. Right. I have to keep my collection somewhere. Yes. Right. So yeah. So what we're going to do, and you've got your box. Yes. I've got my box. Yes. And we're going to pull some magazines at random. Okay. And talk about it. All right. Until we get bored of each other's company. Like, yes. That's how it normally works. Isn't it? Usually about yeah, about twenty minutes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So. Uh, this, have you noticed this box? This is a, a, an old box I got from a supermarket with Weetabix. Boxes yes, of Weetabix. I can see that, yeah. 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 And if you notice this, it's one of those from uh, uh, Weetabix, if you don't know, is, uh, is a breakfast cereal. <laughs> it's an international audience, isn't it? Don't everyone know what Weetabix is. They probably think it's something to do with Brexit. That sounds like a breakfast cereal, I always think. Would you like Brexit? Would you like milk on your Brexit? <laughs> well, it's a, kind of a breakfast cereal. Uh, uh, Weetabix um, that is in lozenge shaped isn't it lozenge yeah, lozen shaped biscuit yeah. lozenge shaped biscuit yeah sort of like it. yeah I think that's the way to describe it yeah you pour milk on it yes and it's, it's awful isn't it really I mean you, well, yeah. the better things yeah. in the morning yeah. Yeah. A, bit, a bit of sugar on it yeah like. um, but there was a time wasn't there in the late 80s if you look on this box where they used to think it was appropriate to advertise it mm. with um, skinheads they did, Skin, didn't, yeah, yeah. I'm like, sure if you, if you do a Google image, Weetabix skinheads, you'll, you'll come up with what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, but they did, yeah. And so, I mean, but as it's fair to say, I think it's fair to say, in case you're any skinheads listening, because you never know. No, no. Um, it wasn't a far-right organisation to start with. It was very no. multicultural, wasn't it? The it was, movement. yeah. It has its origins in black music and all that. But I think it's fair to say, by the time Weetabix were using it, it had pretty much become... Yeah, associated with the far right. Yeah, I'm not sure. It, it, well, I'm not sure what they were trying to achieve with it. You know, yeah. it was appropriated, wasn't it, by the uh, far right boot boys and uh, yeah, and, yeah, rumpa uh, stumper. Yeah, but, but they were using yeah like a kind of cartoon skinhead to advertise the cereal. Yeah, yeah, to kids. Yeah, yeah, very odd. Anyway, that's by the by. It's the content of this box that we're interested. That in. could be the high point of this discussion. <laughs> I've got to set people off now researching the skinhead movement. Yeah, well, we'll have a pause. And, and Weetabix. <laughs> <laughs> they, they all know about this role playing rubbish. They don't, <laughs> they don't know about that. Mm-hmm. See? It's an education. So, we're going to pull one of these um, out, of, out of our respective boxes. Um, and then we're going to. I mean, back in the day, did you get quite a lot of uh, Imagine magazines? I, I, bought, I bought quite a few, but I don't. I didn't buy it quite as um, regularly as White Dwarf. Yeah, I think yeah. we had subscriptions to White Dwarf, didn't we? Didn't we did for a while. I had, I had a subscription for a while, and then, but even when the subscription lapsed, um, I still bought it pretty religiously. I mean, you yeah. know, White Dwarf was out, and you would buy it. It was, it wasn't really question. You would never, I would never question myself. Like, Why do, do I need this copy of White Dwarf? Imagine it's a little bit different um, because sometimes I'd look at a copy and think, well, I'm not so sure. Yeah. Um, but I'm not, I'm not sure that was... Looking back on some of these issues, and I know we're going to talk about them in a minute, I think that might have been a bit of a mistake, actually, on my part. Yeah. Maybe. Well, I, I used to know. buy them fairly regularly. I used mm. to, because, as you know, I've always had, like, a thing for, like, a magazine. You do, yeah, magazine. Yeah, magazine. Uh, and, and comics, that kind of thing. So I used to buy them fairly regularly, but I, I don't think I read them. I yeah. it, it, looking looking yeah. back on it now, yeah. I think it was a pure case that I would pick them and flick through them endlessly. Yes, yeah. And I think it's because um, 
compared with the stuff that was in White Dwarf, it's fairly substantial, isn't it? The, the yes. articles are, you know, the, the, yeah. the stuff to read, isn't it? <clears throat> the articles are quite lengthy, aren't they? Yeah. Yeah, it was in White Dwarf. They were never that lengthy. No. I don't think. They, they were. You'd get double pager, wouldn't you? But in, in, in Imagine, you get sometimes run to three, four, even five pages sometimes. Yeah. This one's looking at one now. One, two, three, uh, four, four sides. And yeah, quite lengthy article. Kind of, and really. substantial, I think. Um, yeah. It allowed some of the writers at the time, like Graham Davis, to kind mm. of breathe yeah. and uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. work an idea. Yeah. Um, well, I think White Dwarf was very um, compartmentalised, wasn't it? So what, you get a copy of White Dwarf and you would know what you were getting. And as a, you know, as a 14, 15-year-old, um, you would be able to kind of easily unpack it and look at, you know, I'll look at room rights, I'll look at this, I'll look at that, I'll yeah. look at whatever. You look at copies of Imagine and they do have, they do have regular bits, you know, yeah. regular departments. But there's less of that, isn't there? There's less of that. There's more articles. There's, there's more substantial articles, and therefore it's less compartmentalized. Um, yeah, which is, is actually looking back on it now is a, a, quite a good thing. Yeah. But at the time, it meant it was perhaps a little bit more. I don't know. A bit harder to get into. A bit yeah. harder to get focus on when you're that age. I don't know. Yeah. I suppose the other thing is is that um, I suppose we'll discuss this as we're going through it on the front page every time it said. Um, um, for players of the Dungeon Dragons R game, R in <laughs> yes, the circle R. game. TM. TM. Yeah. yeah. Um, yes, it did. A... it did. It did. It did. Um, focus on that. It, it, well, hmm, we'll come on to this, won't yeah. we? I think, in terms of the cover, it put itself out as for players of Dungeon and Dragons. But I'm not sure the contents necessarily followed suit. But we'll come on to that, won't we? Yeah. <laughs> That's an interesting topic. But I think. It, it, it's a house magazine for um, TSR, mm. but it felt like it was. Um, um, White Dwarf was a house magazine for Games Workshop because they could have put on the front um, for yeah. the players of games that we have licence for. Yeah, they could have done, yeah. Not, not, not quite as snappy as <laughs> for players of the Dungeon Dragons game, is it? No. <laughs> but even so, yeah. Yeah, they, they were house magazines, but I think imagine. From a cover perspective, certainly, gave that impression that it's for people who play D and D, basically, or TSR games. So yeah. maybe a bit of Star Frontiers thrown in, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. What um, what we could say about it, um, returning to these magazines and looking at them again, it's one of those situations where retrospectively you realise how good they were. No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Didn't yeah, appreciate think, it at the time. No, we didn't really. No, and I think that that partly was because, as we've discussed in these podcasts several times, we we didn't play a lot of D and D. We didn't play a lot of D and D until much much later. Um, so at the time, we were playing RuneQuest, Traveller, Stormbringer, Call of Cthulhu. You know, those were the games we were playing. Um, so th- there was a sense in which perhaps Imagine never felt like it was for us because it put itself out there as for people who played D&D. But as I say, I think looking back on it, I think that's a bit of a mistake, maybe on our part, that once you read a little bit more deeply into it, 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 it's kind of for everyone, really, isn't it? Yeah, (laughs) yeah. Well, let's have a look at some uh, some of the issues. I think uh, you're going to have the delve first. Okay, I'll have a delve in, yeah. 
have a look and oh dear what have you got issue number 20 november 1984 now it doesn't say players of the dnd game on the front but it does say clerics it's a special issue on clerics in the dnd game well, that's a good one uh, i'm amazed i even bought this <laughs> maybe i bought it so to burn and just forgot to yeah so it's an issue about the most boring character class yeah in dnd what does it make it any more interesting um no yeah, it does. It, it does actually, and it's actually it's actually a very good issue. And I think what's interesting about it, it picks up on um, some of the things I don't like about clerics. Um, and it, there's a very good article um, about clerics generally, um, which makes the point um, that the problem with clerics in D and D is that every character class. Um, you can relate to a figure from fantasy fiction or movies. Yeah, so, so there's like warriors. a standard, standard archetype. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Warriors, Conan, King Arthur, Aragorn, you know, thieves, yeah. you've got the Grey Mouser, Bilbo Baggins, that kind of thing. You know, uh, magic users, there's, you know, wizards. There's plenty of wizards out there, isn't there? You can Gandalf, yeah, yeah. whoever, Merlin. But there's no clerics. There's no the idea of a kind of medieval priest doesn't really feature in fantasy fiction and it, there's a great article in it that makes that point um, and then goes on to kind of talk about making clerics more interesting and kind of fleshing them out as characters so how um, does it propose you do that is that well let, let me just find it because i think what it lacks i mean you know i know that we always do this but if you compare it to runequest what runequest has got to help you um be a cleric if mm. you like and, and steeped in religion it gives you the infrastructure and the organisation mm. around yeah. um, the religions and yeah. the, the gods um, to help you motivate a character and build yeah. a character and uh, progress a character and that's what that. it is it's, by, it's an article by Paul Vernon clerics are people too uh, and it makes this point you know that there are none of these archetypes for clerics but the way it does it I suppose is is a little bit like I mean, I think it actually refers to um, it refers to RuneQuest, you know, uh, and uses that almost as a model for making the cleric more interesting by fleshing out the religion. I think what, what it picks up on is, yeah, there are no archetypes in fantasy fiction, but the way to make a cleric interesting is to focus on the religion, which is what D&D back then didn't really do. No. You know, and it even talks about deities and demigods, um, which are... are got a copy of and even that doesn't really talk about it mentions the gods and gives gives the stats for all the gods as if who cares about that it's the organization it's the organizational dimension it doesn't really the early editions of dating and demigods doesn't really do that um it talks about all those kind of things that make to make a cleric more interesting and of course that's what does make a cleric more interesting you know that they've yeah. got some kind of religion some code of behavior and that kind of thing and that's how RuneQuest makes its characters interesting. You know? Yeah. I think that's got um, one in that I remember uh, from back in the day. Uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Is it got one uh, by Graham Davis, which it, about the, um, do you see him die? Um, about, that's it, as God's my yeah, witness. Yeah, there is. There's a, there's a bit about... Um, trial by ordeal. Trial by ordeal, trial by combat, that kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, medieval... Um, 
Because but the, what Graham Davis trials, yeah. What Graham Davis did in those articles, he kind of gave some historical context mm. um, and encouraged you to use them in games, didn't he? So yes. in that one, it was kind of using yeah. um, different religious trials and things. Yeah. The idea was is that you'd have these trials to test you, you, whether mm. there was the divinity. Um, shone upon you, so you're like forced to, in a position where you know yeah. if God, if, if the God, God, if you were yeah, if you were innocent, God would show favour and you, you'd be all right. Yeah, you yeah. wouldn't drown or you wouldn't burn or that kind of thing. Yeah, I think I adapt. I think there's a a, a picture fig one, and there's not a fig two, so I don't know why they bothered putting a fig, fig one. <laughs> fig one, some shields with uh, spiky bits. Spiky, but I yeah. think I adapted that for yeah. a game. And there's an in, there's an interesting article as well. Um, about clerical weapons, which again sort of points out that slight silliness about you know using a using edge a, an edge can't use an edge weapon, yeah. and I think it, it talks about um, something that I think we adapted into our early D and D games when we played a lot of basic D and D. I think I a games mastered it, and I brought this in because I got a bit fed up with this edged weapon thing, where a cleric has a, a holy weapon as a cult weapon. That's the only weapon they're allowed to use. So you might be you might allow a cleric to use a spear or a sword, but that's their kind of a bit like Hermacht in RuneQuest with the broadsword. Yeah. You know, that's their cult weapon. So it's better than a, an edged weapon, but that's the only weapon they're allowed to use to yeah. kind of slay people for their religion. So it's quite a good idea, and I think I remember ad- adapting that into um, into our games. Um, but I think what's an, and I think we'll come back to this again and again during this discussion. What's interesting about it is that on the front cover it talks about clerics in D&D. And yet a lot of the articles are reasonably generic. So the, 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 the article you've just mentioned, the Graham Davis one, yeah, um, that's not really for D&D. No. That could be incorporated into any game. Yeah. So as, as I say, I think I used it as a trial. Yeah. Uh, in uh, request. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it's interesting that they talk about they have some new um, flails and maces, you know. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, they give uh, new flail types again, Graham Davis. Some new new ways of clerics, uh, weapons for clerics to use, but they give the uh, weapon stats for Dragon Quest Traveler Traveler even. You know, yeah. uh, basic role playing, tunnels and trolls, and Bashid, Bashudo, as well as D and D. So it's almost like it's a magazine for D and D, but they're constantly tugging yeah. away from D and D, trying to make it a bit more inclusive. Yeah, yeah. You know, is that, is that something? I, I mean, we've mentioned, don't we, that they um, they, they seem to give um, the contributors more space to write and mm. uh, explore an idea, and there's like quite a cr- bit of crossover, wasn't there, between um, uh, writers for White Dwarf and Imagine. Yeah. Isn't doesn't Lewis Pulsifer have Lewis Pulsifer, oh yeah, the, the great Lewis Pulsifer appears. He's got one in Article there. on alignment. You like that, eh? I do, but I don't I don't like some of this. Alignment, personality and religion. So it's not specifically about clerics, but it, it touches on the idea that I suppose alignment might be more important for a cleric than any other character class. Um, but it's a bit <sighs> It, it's an odd one to read because I think the other tussle, if that's the right word, that it kind of highlights is that between perhaps war gamers and 
role players. Yeah. So what Lewis Pulsifer does is talks about alignment and he says, you know, chaotic action. So he talks about chaotic characters and he mentions something about making a chaotic character, you know, roll a dice to make decisions and things like that. And it always kind of irritates me this because chaotic, someone who's chaotic good in, in D&D, it's not, they're not total maniacs who just decide what we're going to do. Yeah. I'll tell you what. We're going to do this morning. All right, I'll tell you, we've got six options. Let's randomly decide what we do. No, they don't do that, do they? Robin Hood's a classic chaotic good character. He doesn't make random decisions, does he? No. <laughs> I mean, to be, to be fair, I, um, when I've looked at this, I think he doesn't advocate it as a, a thing. That, you know, he, no, he doesn't. He, just, he, uh, he suggests it but, but as what, a means of... But, but uh, what I think is interesting is his approach to alignment is very... is a bit gamey. Yeah. yeah. Rather than saying, look, you know, these are alignments, but what they're suggesting is you should, should role play it. So he, he sort of talks, I mean, he talks about hit, hit points, um, you know, that a lawful character should get a sort of average hit points every time they go up a level, whereas a Celtic character should roll, you know, um, or something like that. And you, you think that it's a very game based way of approaching alignment. Whereas when you look at some of the other articles in it, so the ones about more sort of generic about clerics they're talking about the idea of of role playing it a little bit more yeah. well, it, certainly, it certainly feels that that uh, kind of conflict is being played out mm. between gaming and the story yeah. isn't it in, yeah. in imagination yeah, yeah that, that comes across it particularly comes across in this issue as well you know let's, let's, let me have a delve in my box see what I've got oh this is uh, one of the later ones as well this is um it's the one that uh, comes immediately afterwards. It's uh, December 1984, number 21, and it's the <laughs> superhero oh, right. edition. Yeah. And they used to have these um, genre-specific issues. We did, and I think, going back to what we were saying earlier, maybe that's one of the reasons I didn't buy it as religiously as White Dwarf, because when it... when it, See, I wouldn't, I'd not got that issue. And I wouldn't have bought it because we we didn't really play any superhero no. role playing. No, and I, but I think um, with the it, what's interesting reading this now is it was for um, TSR's Marvel um, superheroes uh, role playing game, and um, it, the main thing that it features is a scenario by Paul Coburn, um, quite a substantial scenario, a one-on-one scenario. Oh. So a games master plus player called mm. uh, Kiss of Death, where you get to play as a player Captain Britain. Oh, Captain Britain! Yeah, yeah. as an exclusive. Oh, yeah. um, you know, uh, I'll, I'll come and rescue you once I've had a brew. Yeah, that's yeah, right. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> <laughs> his, we- his weakness is um, if you play the national anthem to him, he has to stand up and salute. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> he has to stop whatever he's doing. It's yeah, like his kryptonite. <laughs> yeah, the bad guy in here, you know. As a, uh, <laughs> recording the national anthem in his pocket, he plays for now and again, so he can make his escape. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so yeah, um, it's um, it features other characters as well. Like Nick Fury makes a, a, an mm. appearance, and uh, the uh, baddie is a Super Scroll. Um, but yeah, I think this was uh, this was Super Scroll, Super Scroll. Super Scroll. I thought you said Super Squirrel then. <laughs> I thought, God, I'll do it back onto Giant Badgers again, aren't we? Super Badger. And his sidekick, Super Squirrel. 
But I think Captain Britain <laughs> probably would be good against Super Squirrel. He'd be protecting the red he would, squirrels. He would, wouldn't he? Yeah, if Super Squirrel was like a grey squirrel. Yeah. Yeah, trying to destroy the red ones. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah that, that works, that. I might write that down. <laughs> we'll have that. <laughs> um, the, the, other, the other thing uh, in it, which I, uh, I loved, it's got Pelennor, the City League, and it has the arena in it. Mm. And it, it's beautifully drawn, and um, plans for the arena, and some of the characters that you'd find in there. And what was good about Pelennor, mm. when they gave NPCs, they would describe their motivations, mm. what they knew, um, little features about them that yeah. you could pepper the game with. So I think it's really, really good, and it gives you some plot lines that you can run within a within an arena, and it gives you rules for chariot race. I know, <laughs> I don't, I know you don't like a game within a game. Uh, you know me and games in a game. But it gives but, you pretty effective rules for chariot yeah. races. You recreate <laughs> Ben Hur. Ben Hur ben uh, <laughs> yeah. with little squares of cardboard. The other uh, thing it's got of note in here. You flick to the back is uh, do not ask for whom the bell jingles, and it's a <laughs> a mini module for Christmas. And they used to have these kind of novelty yeah. dungeons in there. They did, and I think again, looking back now, reading it now, it's quite good fun, isn't it? But um, at the time, I think as a Paul first fifteen-year-old, yeah. we, we we were a bit sniffy about that, weren't we? Yeah, How dare people have fun with role playing? Yeah, it's I think a serious exercise. I think we've covered before that. You know, back <laughs> back in the day, we had no sense of humour whatsoever. We didn't, no, I didn't, did we? You know, the encounter. Some would it, say we haven't now, but <laughs> you know, you can encounter a snowman who's going to uh, chuck snowballs at you, mm. um, and um, the character, you know, the ultimate boss is Santa Claus mm. at the end. And if you look at the dungeon plan in the middle, it's got like a, a round atrium in the minute, in the middle, which is actually a polo mint. A polo mint, yeah. 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 So. Polo mints aren't very Christmassy though, are they? No, no, but I think it's the ice thing. It's the ice thing. Ice covered. It's white, isn't it? But yeah. The best, um, the best of these uh, adventures that they had was um, one that was in an earlier issue, issue 15. I think it's called Round the Bend. The play characters were Half Ox, uh, Severed the Wizard, and he was studying and he dropped his lens of minute seeing down the sink, down the plug hole. Mm. Yeah. And uh, what he does is actually shrinks the player characters to a size so they can go down the plug hole and the adventure becomes it's going down, down the plug down hole. The drain. Down yeah. the drain. Down the drain. A really uh, clever idea. Almost as good as Captain Britain and Super Squirrel. Yeah. Almost as good as that idea. Almost as good. Almost, not quite. Not quite. (laughs) So that's a a good issue, that number uh, 21. Right. Issue. This this is the next issue after the last one. (laughs) I'm going to stuck together. Put them in order. Who'd have thought somebody like you, as attentive as you, would yeah, have we're them in order. order? It's hard to believe, isn't it? <laughs> um, issue nineteen, October eighty-four. Now, this is a funny, funny issue um, for a number of reasons. Um, going back to the, the idea that it's a TSR House magazine. On the front, it's got a picture of some Viking warriors, like a battle, yeah. and it says on the front, a cast of thousands introducing the Dungeons and Dragons companion set. 
and this was the companion set was um, you had the basic then you had the expert the companion set I think was for character levels 15 plus and I think it had I think it had battle rules in hence the picture of the battle in the front so you open the magazine you're expecting there's going to be some big thing about that doesn't mention it <laughs> doesn't mention it the only mention of it is there is a scenario in here called Sinvel's Peril which does say that you need basic expert and companion rules but there's no there's no article about the companion it's it just it's almost like it's almost like they were told right you're going to have to mention the companion so stick it on the front cover yeah they said we don't really want to write anything about it it doesn't matter <laughs> your, your masters at TSR have said put it on the front so they have done, but when you open it, it's not really made. They don't really talk about it. They just ignore it, really. So there you go. <laughs> it's quite funny. Um, and again, the, the the this thing of you've got some interesting articles. You've got one called "Towards Systemless Scenarios." You, you would imagine, wouldn't you? That would you imagine? You do like that. <laughs> yeah, very good. Thank you. Seamless. It is, isn't it? You would imagine that a TSR house magazine would be very much about TSR games and would be very much trying to say, look, these are the games you want to be interested in. Yeah. But, but it's not doing that. It's talking about systemless scenarios. There's actually a piece by Paul Vernon, Uncharted Stars, which is for Traveller. So it is interesting. And another, as a really interesting article, actually, which is quite... I say it's not funny, but it is. <laughs> It's funny in terms, it's called Role Playing for Remedials. Now, I don't know if you can, can you use the word remedial? Anyway? I don't think. I I don't, think are you allowed to? I, I don't know. Think. But this is 1984, so you are allowed to yeah. use the word remedial. Role Playing for Remedials. I think, I think they call it uh, interventions now, don't they? Do they? they? Oh, right. Well, the Role Playing for Interventions doesn't, doesn't have the same ring to it, does it? No, no. By, by someone called Alan Heaven. Alan Heaven? Uh, I've heard of Alan Heaven before. But on the face of it, um, you think role playing for remedials? Oh, is it is it um, like role playing for dummies? Is it some kind of guide to role playing? But, but it's not. It's mm. not that at all. It's quite a serious article. Right. I'm laughing. I'm laughing, but it's not funny. It's quite a serious <laughs> article. I'll stop laughing. Then. I, I don't know. Well, I've <laughs> got a serious article about the idea of bringing role playing games um, into education, to mainstream education. Uh, on the basis that children who struggle reading or struggle with maths or what ah, have you, right. um, one of the problems they've got is their lack of engagement. So they don't engage with uh, maths and they don't engage with reading and they don't engage with all those things. And role-playing games, because it involves language, it involves storytelling, it involves mathematics, it involves all those things, is a way of engaging people. Yeah in those things as a form of learning so it's it's quite a serious article when you start reading it yeah, yeah. Um, and it makes quite it's a good point you know and, and it reminds me of, of me and you I mean we were we were no great shakes at school I, mean, I, I used to hate maths but it was always peculiar that you know I'd hate maths at school and then I'd go home and play RuneQuest which involves quite a lot of maths yeah you know so he's got it's an interesting point but so it's interesting in itself I think what's also interesting about it is that it, it's not really the kind of article you would find in White Dwarf. No, it's not. It, no. When I look through this issue, it leapt out as being quite different. <laughs> let's, have a, let's have a look at uh, my next one then. Okay. 
This one is, um, well, this is unlike the others, it's this before Pelinor. So this is uh, issue 14. Yeah. And this is, um, this is a good one, this one. I remember this one from back in the day. Uh, this is um, an issue that um, had Brian Talbot's Luther Arkwright at its mm. centre, sorry, was um, given over really to uh, Luther Arkwright. And he did that occasionally. I think last time we were up here, we were looking at the Michael Moorcock special. Yeah. But this this um, uh, this issue kind of introduced um, uh, Luther Arkwright. If you don't know um, Luther Arkwright, it's um, a series of comics that Brian Talbot, I mean, we knew from uh, uh, Nemesis, didn't we? He did Nemesis the Warlock in 2008. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Um, but he had these uh, series of uh, comics which are fairly more cockyian, where um, Luther Arkwright is a kind of uh, character who can step between different parallels of time. So it's this idea that there's um, infinite number of uh, mm. parallels running yeah. in conjunction to e each other and he kind of moves through these parallels of time um, in search of the disruptors because it's a pretty immersive um, story for uh, scenario for Traveller provided where um, people can play the play characters are Valkyrie team Beta and uh, they similarly are moving across these different parallels um, to try and thwart the uh, the schemes of the disruptors, and it's fairly it's very ambitious in scale. I mean, mm. they do it on that uh, in the centre bit. The only thing about imagine they used to put it on card paper, didn't they, in the middle? They did, yeah, like this kind of pull out thing, which is was good really because you felt like it wasn't part of the magazine. So yeah. it was something you could pull out and use and scribble on and yeah, do the kind of things on. as a games master you wanted to do. Yeah. So you can pull it out and uh, use it, and there's actually a. a especially written uh, Brian Talbot comic as a kind of a briefing. But this is a really good scenario. And do you know what I'm going to do? I'm, I'm going to make a commitment here. Mm -hmm. right? There's a convention coming up yeah. in Stockport, March the 18th. Yeah. Put it in your diary. Because okay. I'm going to run it. Right? You're going to run that adventure? I'm going to run it. Well, I'm going to adapt it yeah. to bring it up today. Yeah. 30 years old, isn't it? But I've got the um, I've got the RuneQuest Six or Mithras as we've got to call it now for for licensing reasons. Uh, RuneQuest Six is now Mithras. But I'm going to run it for Mithras because it's got a supplement for running adventures in Luther Arkwright. Oh, right. So I'm going to adapt it f and use this scenario. Mm. So and it's a convention I'm going to run it at, at Convergence in Stockport on the um, 18th of March. You can sign up for it well, if you I'm want. Well, I've been in games you've run before, but go on then, I will. <laughs> <laughs> so that's that's there, if, if anybody wants to uh, do that, so 18th of March 2017, I'm going to run it, because it, you know, it's interesting, it's an interesting adventure. Yeah, 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 I decided it, it, it is an interesting magazine, isn't it? Right, before we go, I've got this issue here. Okay. One of the early ones, this, number 12. Yeah. Okay. And uh, they had a board game. Uh, in the cold. Nah, sorry, mate. More of <laughs> me jobs worth. <laughs> right, okay. More of me jobs worth. More of me jobs worth. It's like all one word. All one word. All one word, yeah. More than my jobs More than worth. my jobs worth. More than my jobs worth. We need to more of my jobs worth. More than yeah. jobs worth, yeah. We should say for our uh, international uh, listeners, more than my jobs worth was a kind of 
means of um, usually public sector people uh, diffusing situations where they were being asked to do something. Asked to do something. Yes. Yeah. So if you, you know, um, can you tell me where platform two is, please? <laughs> it is more than my job's worth. More than my job's worth. To tell to you tell you. Yeah. It's the kind of thing in a, in a classic sitcom. Someone on the door of a building or a hotel that someone wanted to get into. Would you let me in? I can't let you in. It's more than my job's worth. More than my job's worth. More in. than my job's worth. Yes. Yeah. So destructive be- official. Yeah, and it's a kind of uh, idiom, isn't it? You know? Yes. It doesn't have any currency anymore yeah. because, thankfully, due to Mrs. Thatcher's there economic revolution, no more public set of workers, and you know, every the whole country works like clockwork. Yeah. And you can't say it's more than your job's worth because your job's not worth very much <laughs> in the public sector anymore. So it doesn't really, it doesn't really work. So, can I ask you, Blythe, have you ever wondered what it's like working for a games company like TSR? All the time, all the time, and oh, I never what? stop wondering. Uh, or what kind of people end up mm. doing it? Have, mm. have you ever wondered that? I have wondered both things. Right. Well, we'll take it from us. It's no bed of roses. Okay. Really? Yeah. Interdepartmental bitter rivalry. Right. Really? Okay. So this game simulates the experience of working for TSR. It's a simulation of interdepartmental rivalry. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So you oh, get this. I'm intrigued by this. This seems good. This so sounds better than swinging a sword round or casting a fireball. This yeah. is interdepartmental rivalry. This is how I could have resolved the problem with the uh, traveller bureaucracy game. This is what yeah, I was missing. Yeah, you could, couldn't you? So here we go. We've got this checkerboard here. Okay. So, right, first of all, we right. need to decide, are you going to be publications? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Or, or you can be sales. Publication or sales. No magic user. No magic user. Okay. Um... I'll be publications, I think. Publications. It slightly more erudite, doesn't it? Yeah. yeah. I'll be sales. Yes, I think it should be. I'll be sales. Okay. So, right. <laughs> what, what we've got here, so on that side of the board there, that last line there, yes. that's your intray. Okay. And this one on my side is my intray. Your intray, intray yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so what we've got to do around here, we've got these here, these, uh, uh, these eight counters here, put them there. Mm-hmm. Those, that's your publications team okay and this is my sales team okay yeah and this one in the middle here is the book okay okay so you've got to pass the book oh right yeah 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 can you see what they've done i can see what they've done so the two departments have just received very separate memos and they're very embarrassing okay Just what horrors are pretended in these documents, only you can guess. But if the all-powerful managing director catches your department with one of those memorandum, mm-hmm. do you remember them? Yeah, there's no, there's no emails, it's just it's memorandum. It's a memorandum. It's a piece of paper. Throw it in the bin. Shred yeah. it. If you, if, you, if you found with it, it's going to be curtains for everybody. There's only one way you can save your bacon. You must get your memo, the book, right? Yeah. The book. Yeah. That's the into, book that's passed in, yes. into the other players' interest. Yes, I right. see. Yeah, yeah. So, okay. So we've got to decide who goes first. Now it suggests here that you do it as an arm wrestle. I'm not going to arm no, wrestle. We're not going to stoop to those depths. So while we have a game of this, let's listen to Paul Coburn and let's see if this is an effective simulation, simulation of, what it, of what went on. What yeah. it was like. Okay. Mm. Okay. Over to Paul. See you next time, bye. All right. See you, bye. Bye.
Poke open! Open box! Thanks to the wonders of modern technology, I'm able to reach beyond the den using string and two cups to go beyond the shores. Well, right to Middle Earth itself, New Zealand. Back, back in the day, the period that we cover in the Grognard Files, a very influential figure on the UK gaming scene, and most notably the assistant editor of Imagine magazine, which was published by TSR. So how, how did you, let's start at the beginning, how did you get into the hobby? How did you start gaming? There was, uh, I can't remember, it might have been Time Out. There was just an advert uh, for one of the old games days that used to take place in the Royal Horticultural Halls in London. And I was living in London at the time. I know the word game, I know the word day, and then there's all this other stuff after it I don't recognise. What's this What's this Dungeons and Dragons stuff? What's this RuneQuest stuff? Uh, and um, I, I've always, uh, I've always war-gamed, you know, going back to the whole, you know, playing with toy soldiers on the stairs kind of thing. Um, uh, so I, I was peripherally involved in a hobby I didn't even know existed. And then this advert appeared, and I was like, oh, yeah, no, let's go and do this. And came back from that with, with the Red Box edition of uh, Basic D&D. Played it with my then wife and her sister in ways that, you know, just completely are not recognisable from what we call role-playing. And then just kind of went, well, this is really cool. Found some other people that did it. And then almost immediately, um, this advert appeared that said that this outfit in Cambridge was looking for an editor for a new magazine they were going to launch. And I had a little bit of publishing experience by then uh, in, in the job that I was doing. And I was like, you know, this sounds cool. I've really enjoyed being part of this hobby. I'll, I'll apply. And ended up uh, it, it ended up being uh, more complicated than just getting the editor's job because they uh, decided I didn't have the, enough experience um, they hired a professional editor who'd worked on, I don't know, it was, I kind of can't remember the exact title she'd worked on, but it was like Condé Nast titles. It was, you know, uh, women's magazines and, and travel magazines and stuff like that. <clears throat> but she had, you know, boatloads of uh, professional experience. Um, but then on the day I arrive, um, she and I just had this enormous falling out and it looks like I'm not going to survive uh, to the end of the week. Uh, she then goes over to Lake Geneva to meet all of the uh, people on Dragon and what have you, comes back and gets fired um, for, 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 for reasons. And then they're all looking at me and kind of going, well, yeah, uh, we don't think you had enough experience, as we've already explained, but we're going to cut you loose on this thing. And what they did, and the reason that I'm billed as assistant editor, is they brought in another guy who had production experience, right. who had... Uh, he knew his way around print. He knew his way around, you know, and they just figured this is the guy that will ensure that Paul hits deadlines. This is the guy that will ensure that he doesn't kind of, you know, run loose with the budget. So uh, a guy called Keith Thompson, uh, who was uh, an incredible mentor and a really smart guy, he came in, but he had nothing to do with content or what have you because he had no no background in gaming or anything like that at all. At all. He was just there to keep me under control. And myself, Mike Brunton, Kim Daniels, we were the three that, that pushed the magazine out every month. So it was as simple as that? It, you, you, you were playing uh, basic D&D, you saw an advert, yeah. advert in uh, The Guardian and went in for it. In The Guardian, yeah. yeah. Yeah, and went for it, yeah, absolutely. Um, and it was, 
the hobby was tiny then. You'd think now, you know, if if uh, whatever parallel you want to put out, if if one of if a games company put an advert in the Guardian and said we're looking for this incredibly kind of uh, influential and and fun position, uh, they would be swamped with zillions of applicants. But the hobby was tiny then, and I think uh, the, they didn't they didn't get staggering numbers of applications, and they didn't interview that many people, which is uh, lucky for me. <laughs> and and so at that point, what stage was TSR UK at? As it, as it, was it fairly well established, or is is was this at the beginnings of it? None of the beginnings. I, I really wouldn't like to try and guess or remember how long it had been going, but it was settled. TSR was obviously TSR Inc was uh, was still an independent entity in the states. TSR UK was set up as a wholly owned subsidiary um, because Don Turnbull and Gary Gygax were were, were buddies. Um, and Don Turnbull, sorry for people who don't know that, I'm going to assume everybody knows who Gary Gygax was. Don Turnbull was the incredibly personable and well known figure who was in charge of TSR UK back then. Uh, now passed on sadly. So. TSR UK was firmly established as the distributor for all of TSR's products here in, in, in UK. And I think had some responsibility for Europe, although I'm not 100% sure on that one. And one of the things that Don kept telling the Americans is we're in this hopeless position because there's only one way for us to market these products. You know, we can't afford TV advertising. Um or, or, or general press advertising, and besides, where would you target that? The only vehicle to promote these products is White Dwarf, and it's owned by a competitor. So I think the logic always was what we want is our vehicle. And we'll, we'll obviously get back to this a bit more uh, as we go through this uh, through this chat. There was always a good friendly rivalry between Imagine and White Dwarf, but it kind of it does come from a basis of fact in that Don Turnbull wanted us to take White Dwarf's audience and, you know, go past it and develop it and, uh, uh, and just be this vehicle to promote D&D and Star Frontiers and, yeah, everything else that came after. And, it, and it's really good, uh, Paul, to hear some warm words about Don Turnbull because when he's appeared in the podcast previously, it's been... Uh, in reference to snippy letters that he sent to White Dwarf, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> complaining about something that Lewis Pulsiford had written or uh, yeah. uh, Ken Saint Andre about the <laughs> orthodoxy of D and D. So that's him. Yeah, <laughs> um, one of the, it's one of those lovely things is that the guys who originally came in and and, and found D and D by whatever mechanism and, and started playing it in the UK. They were playing really the, the most old school of old school role playing. And I've always said that there was that class of players, and I know a few guys like it still now, who D&D &D is a game that you can win. D&D um, &D is a game, it's, it's like Ludo, and, and you, know, you know what the winning position is in Ludo. Well, there's a kind of an equivalent winning position in D&D, &D, and your goal is to you know maximize what you do with your with your with your character and uh, hopefully you get lucky with some dice rolls and you beat the system you you beat the gm and and get this you know fantastic sense of achievement at the end and guys like me coming along in, in the middle 80s who were kind of going oh actually you can do all this kind of story and character development don just used to look at uh, people like us and go what are you talking about <laughs> um 
So he was absolutely old school, and therefore the kind of player that he was informed the kind of guy he was in charge of a company, um, in charge of kind of being, you know, very much part of the public face of TSR. Don Wood kind of go, no, that's that's not that's not how you play Dungeons and Dragons. Um, uh, so yes, was constantly kind of prepared to have little uh, email, oh, not email, a, a written letter rows with people over minutiae, um, yes. which, uh, yeah. He, but in fairness to the guy, I mean, you know, you'll, you will hear of people who, who, who don't have uh, necessarily fond memories of, of Don Turnbull, but um, he could be an incredibly engaging and amusing... He was, you know, uh, up until uh, the end, I, I had no issues with him as a boss at all. And you kind of watched him around the hobby. You know, he's, he's, a, he's an older man uh, when um, Imagine comes out and during this kind of very big growth of the uh, hobby in the 80s. But it, people respected him and kind of were amused by him. Don could carry a conversation about gaming and be erudite and amusing. He was, uh, yeah, he was an interesting, amusing, intelligent guy. Um, yeah. I, I know it's a long time ago now, uh, Paul, but for, for our benefit, it'd be good uh, if you could take us right back to that first issue and how, how that came about, that what, what the experience was putting that first issue out. <laughs> Pretty terrifying, as I'm sure you can guess. Um, obviously, you know, I've not come in at the very beginning. I wasn't there, wasn't there for any kind of strategic discussion about what the magazine was going to be about. Uh, which was very much down to Don Turnbull in conversation with the Americans uh, and Tom Kirby, who is now... What is Don, Tom Kirby's job title these days? Anyway, Uber God of Games Workshop, uh, who was uh, TSR's general manager. He and Don, Tom, Tom Kirby and Don Turnbull, basically kind of put the strategic uh, shaping of it together. But then this kind of, you know, complete numbskull of a kid comes along. I'm in my middle 20s at this point. And it's like, and now we want you to execute this because we fired the other woman, and you know, what? And so there was, there was very little on the table when I walked through the door, and we didn't have a staggering amount of time to kind of plan and get the first issue out. It was going to, uh, I think we had about three months from memory, although again I might be wrong there, might be might be a bit more. And so, what's it going to do? What are we What are we going to to do about it? And certain decisions had been made, like uh, there'd been this thing called the RPGA newsletter, uh, the Role Playing Games Association newsletter uh, that uh, a guy called Graham Morris uh, put out within the company. And that was always going to be folded into Imagine. So that was one thing that was going to happen. We were going to try and talk to new people. Uh, we were going to try and proselytise for the hobby. So it had to be introductory. At the same time... It had to cater for reasonably, you know, experienced and what have you players. Uh, and we had to do everything better than, than, than White Dwarf. So there was this kind of open-ended nature to it, which was incredibly exciting. It allowed me and the rest of the team to kind of experiment with, with, with what we were going to do and, and how we were going to do it, which meant, of course, we made, you know, incredible mistakes. But it was also quite terrifying because it really was a case, what if the whole thing is a mistake? What if this is absolutely not what people want? And, and therefore, when the first one came out and people were, we, we, saw, we started seeing reviews in fanzines and what have you, and people were like, yeah, and, and we were obviously like, not 
hitting the mark straight away and people were kind of going you know they've got a long way before this is as good a magazine as white dwarf but we hadn't fouled up so it was like okay so now let's start evolving and moving this thing along yeah i seem to remember that it had a pretty good distribution it would it seemed to have yeah. more of a, a a news agent presence than even white dwarf at that time so i expect the pressure was high uh, because it was going out so widely yes um i, I don't i never was involved in kind of discussions i think we we got some distribution through um wh smith and stuff like that never was involved at that kind of level but it was a sense that you know if if the sales numbers come back and they are dire, uh, this thing will obviously get canned really, really quickly. Because of the nature, because Don had wanted to do this independent thing, and I, I'll backtrack slightly to go, the Americans' vision of what was going to happen with this magazine that Don had persuaded them to do was incredibly different. Um, I've seen some transcripts of some interviews Gary Gygax gave back uh, before he died, and his expectations of, of what was going to happen in the UK were utterly, utterly different. So, you know, we didn't have a lot of time. This was going to have to get right quickly. And that meant that there wasn't going to be, you know, a year of dire circulation numbers that were picking up and therefore we could just keep going until we got it right. Uh, we needed decent numbers fairly quickly. And so the learning curve, not just getting the first one out, but then watching the reaction to that and going, okay, here's what we got right, here's what we got wrong, more of the first, less of the latter, let's go again. Um, and I, I kind of look back on those early issues, and I have kind of skimmed them over relatively recently and gone, yeah, you can just see how raw and uninformed some of the first, I don't know, few are. But then there comes a point when we start to hit our stride a bit. Yeah, and we'll go. We'll go, and uh, we'll look at some of the uh, things that featured in uh, Imagine, and how you kind of started to get that voice uh, by looking at yeah. some of those specific things. So you mentioned there that you know the um, parent company TSR had different expectations. What were they looking for? Kind of a repeat of Dragon in the US. Yeah, um, and it's 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 all part of the really kind of interesting tactical confusion with all this because you start from a point where as i say don was going oh white dwarf is our only advertising vehicle vehicle that's a problem uh and the yanks would go can't we just make dragon work in the uk and there was absolutely no evidence of that being the case dragon sold okay to some really deep aficionados but that was it it wasn't doing anything so one of the things I've, I've read that Gary Gygax was saying at the time is, well, what we do is we strip out all of the you know, American convention stuff and uh, anything that's kind of territorially specific. And you basically you add that then for the UK. You do all your clubs and your, um, and, and you, and your British based conventions and, and news and stuff like that. And I think he even said, you know, it should be called Royal Dragon because that will sound British. Um, <laughs> and that's what we do. Effectively, you you tap into this great well of content that there is because Dragon have been going for, you know, God knows how long and uh, and use that. Uh, but just, you know, put all this UK branding, well, not branding, UK um, information around it. Um, but we... Uh, uh, 
Don Don's argument was no dragon is like that's too low a starting point. Um, the numbers of dragon that we sell each month are tiny, and nobody in the UK is kind of going. Thank goodness we've got dragon because that's giving us what we need. So the idea that you could just you know repeat I don't know three quarters of the magazine and then stick some stuff about British clubs in, you know Don, Don was just no that won't work. So. This huge divergence of opinion about what it was going to be. And one of the things I really remember from my kind of first week was we knew we were going to get the barbarian character class, not in time to launch, but for issue two. Cool. And I was like, you know, every time something like that comes out from the parent company, that's going to be a godsend to us. In terms of the UK audience, we will introduce it. Uh, and that'll be, you know, that'll be awesome. Um, but of course, uh, there's not that much of that stuff. So when we're then being told, oh, you can also have this article, you know, written by one of the main guys in the States, uh, uh, how to play an 80th level paladin. And yet here we are trying to sell something that's also of utility to newbies. We were like, this isn't going to cut. This isn't going to work for us because we already know that because Dragon doesn't sell. So, yeah, it was. There was a lot of tension around that, around that, and I, 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 as I say, I know that some of the top guys in the states um, thought we were a little bit uh, out of control, a little bit up ourselves, trying to do this thing and not drawing more on their experience. Um, and one of the things I think is true is I wish I'd had more time talking with my opposite number on Dragon, but we just. In the end, we couldn't draw on uh, American material as much as I think everybody assumed originally, because it just didn't fit. And and, and during this time, uh, Paul, were you able to play? So were you still playing, or was your yeah, time yeah, yeah. Take, taken up with uh, with being an editor? <laughs> well, I, I mean, yeah, it was it was it was a pretty full on experience, but you know you. You're living in an environment like the, where the uh, TSR UK were, uh, were based in a place called the Mill. It was an old converted mill building um, uh, and a very cool environment to be in. And there was kind of some space for gaming tables and what have you on in one of the rooms. So we did. And the guys uh, who got hired to write the um, the UK series of modules were kind of doing stuff. So you play test those. You play test all the stuff that was going to be used for demo games in games day or games fair so there was this environment of stuff all around plus you you know once we decided that we weren't just a tsr house magazine we had visitors come over and we'd be introduced to other games and i can remember us play test well not play testing but playing a call of cthulhu scenario for the first time and i was like oh no this is me the dungeons and dragons stuff that's that's fun uh, but this, this is what I want to do. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I, I was gaming as much as possible. Um, the guy who introduced you and I, 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 with Tom Kirby, was running a games club in a village just outside uh, Cambridge. And that's where I met Sam, the guy that introduced us. And so I was on a weekly basis playing with a bunch of kids, most of whom I've kept in contact one way or another. And... Every now and again, we would just like try something weird on them. We're going to talk about uh, Pelinor later on, but Pelinor was field tested on this uh, gaming club. Yeah, I mean, we should we should say thank you to uh, Sam Vale. He's been a, a 
big supporter of the podcast and he brought us together so we should acknowledge that so thank you yes yes sam's matchmaking uh, <laughs> And, and what about now, uh, Paul? Do you, do you still play? Um, I'm currently in a little bit of a hiatus because um, the gaming group... I'm, I'm in Wellington, New Zealand now, uh, as we were uh, joking around at the start. I'm uh, down in the lands of the Hobbits and uh, joined a gaming group pretty well straight away. But um, uh, we're, a, we're a female-dominated group. There are more uh, women players than men, and two of the women have, been, uh, have just had kids. So we're in a little bit of a hiatus uh, until um, sanity returns to their lives. We've been we've ball games. We kind of we can do occasional things, but it's just hard to do the weekly gaming thing. So uh, yeah, we're hoping to uh, get that back on track. New Zealand's a huge indie gaming thing. You know, um, I was like, uh, oh. I need a I need a really good Call of Cthulhu campaign I can drop into. So I'll you know I'll go in the local game store and I'll kind of you know check on the uh, on the internet and I'll just find some what's this? Um, uh, and they really are they're into their indie indie games they're into their one shot games. So uh, been to a couple of. Uh, games conventions here in wellington and it's just a hoot because it's like you have no idea what you're going to run into um <laughs> people just kind of i've got this pickup game oh yeah well yeah, yeah, yeah. and you're a movie producer and oh my god um yeah, okay <laughs> um so I, I really do i i because i'm you know i'm now old school uh i uh, i look back and or, or look around and go i still want that call of cthulhu campaign um but actually an awful lot of what we do is just um, experimental stuff and that kind of fits me because in my last few years in the UK we were gaming diceless we we had a kind of uh, we used to use I think originally magic cards and then tarot cards and so we'd use things for kind of imaginative uh, spur of the moment stuff you know something that could kind of give you a quick hook uh, rather than you necessarily having to make a decision but yeah we went we, we went diceless we had, we had this huge campaign that lasted for about 10 years and what, what, was, set, what setting was that what game was that uh this was um uh the the now infamous t-ball campaign it was um it was basically that the fallen angels from uh from the from the bible were uh effectively the ruling classes of uh european society this is set in um 16th century hungary because you know you can never obscure to never never game too obscurely. So basically, uh, there's a there's a huge. This is when the Ottoman Empire is basically taking over Eastern Europe, and our focal point. There's a huge battle that's not kind of very well known in the uh, in the West uh, at a place called Mohacs, 1526. Uh, it's just south of uh, Budapest, and this is like the destruction of the Kingdom of Hungary and uh, and and the Turks take over. And we basically just used that as a centre point. It was it was going to be. Uh, an end point of one of our kind of mega chapters as a historical hook to pin this thing of, but in the background, a lot of these famous people, a lot of the uh, the ruling classes and the high churchmen and this, that and the other are, we always used to lazily call them vampires, but we never really meant them as vampires. They're, they're the fallen angels. They are these incredibly ancient spirits that take, that take on human form and basically... Uh, when you when you look at a dynasty that's got you know that's particularly sinister, say the Bathory uh, clan in, in Hungary, it's actually actually only it's one 
person. It's one individual consciousness that inhabits, you know, different generations. So our poor player characters were just bumping up, you know, against stuff that was way too powerful for them from the very beginning uh, at a time in which um, Eastern Europe is, you know, on fire and ablaze. So, uh, yeah, it was it was enormous fun, and I um, I'm, I miss that kind of. We all have a rough idea of where this game is going to go, but this is just like deep storytelling. And has any of that been uh, published, Paul? No, we, um, there's a, a, a very good friend of mine, Simon Taylor, um, who's uh, from your neck of the world, uh, judging by accents. Um, <laughs> and uh, Cy Taylor and I have talked about this any number of times. Um, and in the era of Kickstarter, it's it, it's... It's repeatedly a temptation to do it. It's it's incredibly hard because we're very aware now of, of how uh, of the complexity and depth that we put into that story, and it's whether that actually then translates into there were three of us who were GMing it, whether another group of GMs could actually use that without us having to provide so much kind of additional material and so many other possibilities that it would just drown under the under, under the weight of it so um we've we've looked at this and there are drafts of some of the early stuff kicking around on various computers but we've never actually had the chutzpah to go no let's stick a year of our lives aside and uh, and, and make this happen white dwarf white dwarf goes critical Issue 39 and a bold new look for White Dwarf was introduced. Gone was the distinctive Art Nouveau logo, now replaced by big, blocky, in-your-face title. This is White Dwarf. More pages and new styling were brought in, and new games were covered, starting with Champions a superhero RPG, no less. Whatever next? The venerable dwarf himself was reduced to a mere silhouette on the contents page, although this proved to be a change too far and he was reinstated a few issues later. Oh, and there was a new book review column. I suspect many of us didn't realise at the time just how influential and indispensable critical mass was to become, and how quickly. Many other attempts at regular columns on topics related to RPGs, computing, films, board games, came and went, while critical mass carried on strong, perennially popular with the readers. There was a reason for that. Dave Langford. White Dwarf really struck the jackpot with Dave Langford. The multi-Hugo award-winning author and critic made Critical Mass column required reading from the start. He brought an insight and real depth of knowledge about science fiction and fantasy genres to the job. His reviews were invariably a joy to read. He praised excellence, but brought his acerbic wit to bear on some of the most memorable put-downs of mediocre works in the field. But always his affection for the genre shone through. Looking back at all the critical mass columns now, 
you can only marvel at the sheer number and range of books that Dave Langford covered. He looked beyond the hyped blockbusters of the day to also bring us reviews of some of the quirkier left-field books that were published at the time. This brought authors to White Dwarf readers' attention that may otherwise have not have heard of. I'm personally grateful that I was introduced to John Crowley, Jonathan Carroll and M. John Harrison through entries in Critical Mass. Through a relatively short review, Dave Langford could really excite you about a book. And, as friend of the Grognard Files, Big Jack Brass, noted on Twitter a while back, there was no such thing as a plot spoiler in a Dave Langford review. Even if he did detail events in the story, it was so deftly written that it just made you want to read it even more. Perhaps it's just me, but I always got the impression that Dave Langford preferred SF to fantasy. He seemed more comfortable reviewing the likes of Brian Aldiss, Ian Watson and Bob Shaw. With the fantasy genre, I think he was ground down by having to continually scale mountains of high fantasy doorstops. Set in a land of portentous capital letters, where a dark lord sat on his mountain ring lair, presumably hoarding all the vowels. He did wonder why anyone would want to be a dark lord at all. They all get zapped with such a monotonous success that you think that school careers officers would have long ago stopped recommending black lordship jobs. Evil should be closer to home. His preferences in the fantasy genre tended towards the humour of the likes of James Branch Cabell and Terry Pratchett, or, as mentioned, works more on the fringes of conventional fantasy, with authors like John Crowley and Robert Holstock, who brought genuine innovation to the field. It's probably inevitable that negative reviews tend to be more memorable than the positive reviews. Of the latter, a couple's stick in the mind are reviews of Ramsay Campbell's The Hungry Moon and Jonathan Carroll's Bones of the Moon, both of which I bought and read on the strength of their reviews in Critical Mass. Dave Langford was clearly a fan of Ramsay Campbell's understated approach to horror and highlighted the book's twin threats of an ancient evil coupled with scary biblical fundamentalists. Which of the two is more frightening, I'll leave you to decide. It's a great example of Campbell's complex, layered approach to building a genuinely unnerving narrative. And, as Langford concluded, definitely a book to make you draw the curtains and turn up the central heating. Langford also had warm words for Jonathan Carroll's hallucinatory, dream-infused novel where oblique fantasy takes a darker turn and erupts into real-world violence. For what it's worth, I'll add my own personal recommendation for Bones of the Moon. The main characters are so well-drawn that I felt a real sense of loss when I'd finished the book, as I'd 
be no longer sharing their story. But I think Dave Langford was at his very best with his merciless excoriations of mediocrity. These reviews were always hugely enjoyable to read, even when he was having a go at an author I like, which of course brings me to, who else, Stephen Donaldson. This author cropped up quite a few times in early critical mass columns. I think it's fair to say that, overall, Dave Langford wasn't a fan. Like many other reviewers, he found Donaldson's excess verbiage off-putting, along with the tortured angst of the main protagonists. Having said that, he also found Donaldson's convoluted approach to fantasy original and welcome, even if that did mean he had to wade through 3,000 pages of unremitting covenant. His fairly even-handed approach put Dave Langford in a position of being taken to task by both Donaldson fans and those who felt that Donaldson should be never let near a word prosa again. For my own part, I am an unabashed Donaldson fan. I'm willing to put up with the dictionary swallowing and rather solipsistic characters. Donaldson's viewpoint is novel. He tells stories about people with real concerns and ultimately he can spin a really good yarn. And then there was possibly Dave Langford's most famous review of all, his expert takedown of Battlefield Earth by everyone's favourite science fiction writing bizarro cult founder and charlatan, L. Ron Hubbard. The review was infused with sheer incredulity that a book so offensively bad could have been written. Dave Langford listed several examples of Hubbardian science that are frankly laughable. The fact that the book continued in this vein for over 800 pages he found dreadful and tedious beyond endurance. It's very tempting to quote the review in full. However, I encourage you to visit Dave's website, ansible.uk, A-N-S-I-B-L-E dot U-K, and buy the Complete Critical Assembly instead. This collects all of the critical mass columns in one volume, together with columns he wrote for some other RPG magazine. Do yourself a favour and buy a copy, and then you can read and reread the Battlefield Earth review, along with all the others at your leisure. You won't regret it. Reading all the critical mass columns together is simply a joy with the occasional wince-inducing embarrassment for a poor author caught in the Langford crosshairs. Honest, funny, precipent, he reviewed without fear or favour, and, occasionally, he was not beyond, if not exactly biting, then at least giving the hand that fed him a bit of a nip, with some arch comments on fighting fantasy game books, and latterly, Warhammer novelizations too. Ah yes, Warhammer. In the late 80s, the Warhammer juggernaut really started to roll. As White Dwarf changed before our eyes and stopped being a role-playing games magazine. 
the one remaining constant in the sea of change was critical mass. But then, in issue 106, came the announcement that critical mass was ending. And with that, at least for me, there was no real reason to buy the magazine anymore. And so, 106 was my last issue too. The final link to the magazine had been such an influence on my teenage years was gone. Overhead, without any fuss, White Dwarf magazine had gone out. Postbag! On the subject of Imagine magazine, I've received this from DM Mike. We at Save or Die have recently hit a conundrum that we hope you can help with. In episode 126, we reviewed Imagine Magazine's Pelinor campaign. As part of the review, Liz brought up the description of an NPC that she felt rather strongly about. In particular, the female elf named Goldmeadow was the bee in her gaming bonnet. When it came to the description of any unusual qualities the NPC had, for Goldmeadow, it simply said she smelled wonderful. For brevity's sake, I'll simply say that she was annoyed. The discussion then went on to sniffing of NPCs by play characters. As Save of Die has gone on, we've discovered that there were D&D play styles across the US that differed noticeably from each other. Great late gamers tended to hire lots of hirelings. West Coast gamers tended to use gonzo spells and torchbearers, while Southern gamers tended to askew both. So, could you please let us know if sniffing was a unique aspect of the UK D&D gaming scene? Well, Mike, uh, it's a difficult one, this one. Uh, my NPC has no nose. How does it smell? I don't know, you'll have to roll for it. And what's striking about the way that NPs were presented in Pelinor is that they were described beyond stat blocks. There was sensory information about them, rumours that they might be aware of. Smelling wonderful provides something distinctive and memorable about the character, rather than presenting a high charisma stat, for example. In the early 80s, in the UK... There was a war going on. The power gamers versus the burgeoning story gamers. Imagine was one of the battlegrounds. In the next episode, Paul Coburn will be going on the other side of the Gamesmaster screen and I'll roll on a table and look at some of the features from Imagine, including Pelinor. So, the fanzine is ready for dispatch. It officially launched in Manchester at the first Grognard Files meetup at the Grog Meet in November. To our surprise, it turns out that there are actual living, breathing humans actually listening to these bobbins, and we got to meet some of them. Find out more about it and about the fanzine at thegrognardfiles.com. The podcast and other projects are supported by our virtual tip jar on Patreon. And we have some new Patreons. So first up, thank you to Phil Baldowski, who is an honorary member of 
the Armchair Adventurers. Phil produces great gaming accessories. Her store, all rolled up, was present at our uh, first ever grog meet, and she very kindly donated bespoke prizes for the event. Thank you very much, Phil, and welcome on board. At three and a half dollars, there's industrial. Yes, that's industrial. Thanks, industrial. Uh, for those who are throwing in five dollars or more, I gave him a gift from a random table. Are relevant to the subject under discussion uh, so it's a bit tricky this one so I've gone for issue 26 of Imagine here uh, and this is the issue where uh, uh, Roger Musson uh, revisited the monster mark for some reason and uh, there's a scenario uh, called The Great Paladin Hunt which we always liked as there's an illustration that looks the spitting image of the popular footballer Stroke 80s soccer pundit Jimmy Greaves. Check that out if you can. Okay, I'm going to roll on the Wayfarer's Table from Paul Vernon's Fellow Travellers article, which was all about people that you might meet on the road in D&D. Okay, so first up is Stephen Andrews. Is it D100? Oh, 81. Bailiff. Oh, we've got a bailiff. So that's useful for collecting debts and you can save your knuckles. Uh, thanks, Stephen. Okay, next up is Andrew Cowie, who is at Grogmeat and has kindly upped his pledge level. And he's got 34. And 34 is a, a clogger. So you can fix your shoes while on the road. Thank, thank you very much, Andrew. Talking of cobblers, Andrew attempted to do an impression of us, reflecting our northern accent and laid-back style. Well, we're learning about podcasting all the time here at the Grognard Files. I don't have the natural voice for radio, but I'm always learning. So here's a good lesson. When you're doing an interview, make sure you get the uh, interviewee's name right. For example, now, so I've got uh, Paul Cockburn with me over in New Zealand. First of all, um, uh, what, a, what, a, what a terrible way to uh, introduce yourself. It's Coburn, not Cockburn. Cockburn, um, oh, Cockburn, right, and, and okay. This, 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 this clearly shows that it's time that Coburn's port um, ran their Christmas adverts again, because... Um, for anybody of a certain age, uh, they'll recall that they always used to uh, check the pronunciation. Um, <laughs> for, for, uh, obvious yes, for obvious for reasons. For obvious reasons. For obvious reasons. Yeah, absolutely. When I was a kid, and they, they were running those adverts back then, when I was a kid, um, it was such a blessing in, in some ways to know that any teacher who looked at a booze advert over Christmas, you know, the following January and what have you, they'd know how to pronounce my name at last. And this was a blessing. <laughs> Except, of course, all the kids in, you know, at school would have gone, we saw your advert. <laughs> and they would just have an incredibly hard time and follow you around the playground going, it's not cock, it's co. So, you know, good times. Good times. So, so right. So you're not, you're not a cock, you're a co. Uh, so I am indeed not a oh, Plenty of people tell you I am a cock. But, uh... <sighs> Adios, amigos. <laughs>